Recorded live from three places on the third rock from the sun, it's Transformation Thursday. I'm Jamie Rodriguez in Reston, Virginia, and my pronouns are she, her. And I'm Amy Stevens, and my pronouns are she, her as well, and I'm in Rochester, New York, believe it or not. Amy, can you move that forward a bit? Do you mean my chair or my microphone? Oh, neither of those. I mean, move your voice forward under your soft palate. Oh, you mean like this? Wonderful things are happening. Wonderful things are happening. Wonderful things are happening. Exactly, just like that. Jamie, why are you having me do vocal exercises right now just before we record a podcast? Well, because we're interviewing your vocal therapist, Jerry Ann Jackson from the University of Rochester Medical Center. And I want you to sound your best. Oh, you always think of me. Well then, I better continue with the vocal exercises during the break then. But we'll be right back with our interview with Jerry Ann Jackson right after the traditional music swell and fade out. Wonderful things are happening. Let's talk about change, Amy. Okay, let me see. It looks like I've got three quarters, a nickel, a Canadian loony, and a few British tenors from when I was in London because I'm an international comedian. No, not that change. Change is in transformation. The topic of Transformation Thursday. Oh, yeah, that. Well, we're doing this podcast to highlight how much things change and how quickly they do it in society today. Everything changes, and change isn't good or bad. It just is. The more we realize that change is just the natural progression of things, the better off we'll be. Now, let's talk about change. Didn't we just do that? No, no, not the last one. The first one. The coins. Money. About how people can give us some of theirs so that we can continue talking about ours. Are you just trying to get people to go to our Patreon page to support this podcast so that we can continue our exploration of what it means to live in a rapidly changing world? Because although this is a labor of love we do have expenses and by going to transformationthursday.com they can help ensure that we can continue to be bringing this fun and insightful commentary on the world today plus get exclusive patrons only content um if i say yes can we get on to our next segment oh god i hope so okay then transformationthursday.com also can you break a 20 for me sure i can get that to you in euros okay now you're just showing off Welcome back to Transformation Thursday. I'm Jamie Rodriguez, and my pronouns are she, her. And I am Amy Stevens, and my pronouns are she, her as well. Just in case you're wondering, Jamie Rodriguez is filling in for Penny this evening because Penny's just been a little bit under the weather and had a scheduling conflict today. And I would like to thank our general counsel for agreeing to step in at the very last minute for this interview. Thanks, Jamie. Oh, of course. Just wait until you get the bill. Um, Today, we're discussing the importance of vocal therapy for some transgender women. Um, Welcome to Transformation Thursday, Jerry Ann Jackson. And I guess, uh, Amy, do you want to kick it off with the first few questions? Sure. You know, Jerry Ann, you and I have been working for a while. And, you know, and I think I think I've you know, seen some improvement, definitely a lot of improvement, but I mean, how did you get involved with this? And you know, what, what attracted you to vocal therapy in the beginning? When I first went back to school as an adult, once my kids went to school, I was going to become an animal behaviorist or go write species survival plans for animals on the verge of extinction. And um, through 
tutoring and learning centers and some neuro courses that I took, I became really interested in communication disorders and wound up with my degree in speech pathology or communication sciences and disorders. When I started, I was particularly intrigued by voice therapy over all the other things that speech pathologists do. And I think that the reason that I was so attracted to doing gender affirmation therapy is because this is an underserved uh, therapy in this area. Um, the population that is looking for this kind of therapy is woefully underserved, not just in Rochester, but in the surrounding rural areas. So it felt like a good niche in some place where I felt like I could do some good. That was a, a long answer for a short question. No, that was great. <laughs> edit that out, <laughs> if you like. Um, what? When did you start doing uh, voice therapy, Jerianne? About 15 years ago. So I was almost 50 years old when I graduated my second time around and started working. I started out in Newark Wayne Community Hospital and set up a voice center there and then moved to Strong about nine years ago, I think. It you know, I, I would like to just make a comment about kind of the importance of voice therapy. I've been doing some voice therapy myself um, and it is really is affirming and you know the so the the work that you're doing and other people in your field you know it is definitely needed and you know trans people who are trying to come one of the toughest things we go through is trying to get our voice you know it, to to sound in a way that helps us to get you know gendered correctly and to fit into kind of society so it is so important I'm interested in like, what have you, like, what's been the change over the past 15 years? You know, you talked about, and that's kind of a long time. You've probably seen some transitions in, you know, society in general and in the practice. What's that been like? And in myself as a practitioner, when I first started, I obviously was brand new and um, mostly saw the the biggest part of my population was probably older trans women, 50s, 60s, even 70s, who took a long time to be able to find that comfort to um, start to realize who they were. Over the course of the last 15 years, my population has shifted to include many, many teenagers, as well as a younger population, 20s, 30s, and 40s. I still have a few older individuals, um, and I run a group for women over 50, but um, the population has shifted to younger, excuse me, younger and younger people. And I, it's a happy shift because it makes me think that in number one, people are giving themselves the permission to be who they are earlier. I think that the younger you are, the easier it is to make some of those fundamental shifts in the motor patterns that you know we're trying to develop so that the different qualities become automatic for us versus having to think about them all the time. And for myself, the I think the biggest change was when I started out, probably because of the population I had, the 
the goal was to use the word I don't like was to pass, right? So, and, and not that I don't think that that's terribly important because there are, there are so many safety issues. Um, but I think, I think, I think, more, I think, I think more about people finding a voice that reflects who they are and being able to communicate who they are. So it's not so much, the, although passing is in, important, it's not so much about that and about what other people think, but about when I talk, when I'm communicating to the world and trying to make connections with people, do I feel like this is really me connecting with that person or do I not? And does that put up a barrier to that deeper connection that I could make with another human being? And so I think that's been that's been the biggest biggest shift. And I think that's from learning from all of my patients. And I call them patients, I call people patients because I work in a hospital setting. Other people who work in a, a more private practice or a different kind of clinic might say clients. Uh, you, I'm just going to keep saying patients because I will have to think too hard to revert to client uh, because of where I work. But I, I think that shift is due to all of my patients and everything that they've taught me over the years. Um, I don't know what it's like to walk in their shoes, but after treating and becoming close to, you know, hundreds of people, I feel like I know what I'm doing from a, a heart perspective so much better than I did initially when I started. And you, you just mentioned initially. So initially when you were starting out in Wayne County, which is east and, you know, on the edges of the Rochester metropolitan area here, um, you know, were you working with trans and gender diverse folks or, you know, how did you, how did you get involved with our communities? So I had an interest in graduate school and mostly that interest was driven by the fact that it, it was an underserved area. So it felt like a place where I could do some good and make some changes that weren't happening. And um, I worked with an ENT at Newark to set up the voice center. And I talked to him about it. And um, his, his name is Dr. John Santonzi. And he was really wonderful in supporting my energy. And so what we did was we came up here and we did a bunch of talks all around the city. And um, gradually people just started to drop in. And when you say here in the city, you're referring to Rochester, correct? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Just want to make sure. Yep. Yep. So, and then, and then with that, you know, as we, you talk about that idea of passing and I know that's an idea that's this very vague, very nebulous. And I like blending in and I like, you know, acceptance. I don't know what we're, it's, that's a, such a loaded term. It's become, it is. It is. it's become, yeah. But I mean, how, how are, you know, when we're going through adolescence and our and our minds are developing, you know, how are our minds trained to recognize gender and voice patterns? Oh, we do that long before adolescence. We okay. do that as we're hardwiring, probably before we're two. That's that's pretty much completed. Um, and it's not. I don't want to say it's so much. So so take a, a someone who's trans. 
as they're developing and hardwiring what they perceive as male and what they perceive as female, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to start using that pattern because honestly, when you're a child and people are telling you you're one thing, that's what you're going to try to imitate what you're what you're going to try to fit into, which is why the work is so hard later on. But yeah, we have all of those patterns, both from, you know, how, how we shape vowels to how we inflect to how long we might hold on to a vowel or a consonant, whether our speech is legato or whether it's more staccato, all that stuff is hardwired by the time we're two. Wow. That's really interesting. So, so there, you know, one thing I, I often tell people like, my voice training has been probably the most challenging one of the one of the most challenging parts of my transition in that it there is no well it, from my perspective there was no like quick fix it just took time um to i guess develop the muscles and kind of you know figure it out yeah and the brain patterns and what you know, I, I want people who might be considering voice training to to take that in. It's like this isn't something you go in and do in a week and it's like, oh, you know, I got a week of training and now I'm good. It's like kind of an ongoing thing. Can you talk a little bit about like what is kind of the outline that you take for a new a new patient or client and the kind of things that they will focus on? Sure. It's not like the doctor, right? Where you go in and you, you can schedule your surgical appointment. And even though you've got to wait a long time for it or, or argue with the insurance company, it's still someone else is doing that, right? The, the bulk of the work is on you when you're doing voice therapy. Someone is helping you and giving you tools, hopefully, so you can do it safely. But I typically start I ask people to make a kind of mental commitment for about 10 visits initially. And maybe the first four, I like to see once a week so we can get grounded in some of the resonant therapy, which I like to do first and I'll talk about in a second. I try to caution people that it is probably going to be close to a year before they feel like they can call up the motor pattern when they want. So and maybe four to five years before you can't get back into that old voice again. So that, that your target voice is where you always are. It takes a long time. Some people get through the therapy piece in, in four or five visits. They're really quick. Other people um, take longer. I have seen people for upward of 20 or 30 visits as short as four or five visits. Um, it depends on sometimes um, how much you can practice, how comfortable and safe you are in all your different environments. And I usually ask about that during our initial evaluation. Um, the degree of fear around sounding foolish or sounding bad or even being read. So I have patients who won't talk when they go out or they'll whisper, so we can't practice because we're afraid to use our voice when we're out. So all of those things play into whether, so then more visits become more important because that's the practice time, right? When, when you're with me. So then more visits become important. 
I do run groups. I think the groups have been, I've done it for three years now, an amazing addition to um, therapy and to the experiences that many of my patients have. I do have people who are agoraphobic, don't come out of the house. I have people who are afraid to come out and be who they are. So they're presenting one way out in the world and another way at home. So these groups are wonderful for people just to be who they are and be able to practice and explore the parameters, right? Am I the kind of person who likes to say, oh my God, that is so much fun? Or am I a little more, you know, circumspect like this, right? And a little more, uh, a little more austere in my language. And, and it takes some exploration to figure that out. Did that answer your question? <laughs> yeah, that was great. It, you know, it, it is kind of like a blossoming. You sometimes through your voice, you come, your, um, your persona and your um, just really starts to come out to the world once you free yourself to let your voice out. I love the way you said that. And that free yourself, I think is so important. One of the, and it's so hard. It's so hard because people have spent so much of their time hiding, right. And keeping that part tamped down. And one of my, one of the things we do is we do a lot of role play because sometimes to be yourself is scary, but if you're playing a character, then you can kind of jump into it and and free yourself a little bit. And then we can back up from there and say, oh, well, what about that? Did you like what fit, what felt good? So we do things from Southern Bell and, and librarians and pop stars and, and all these different things. Um, but that moment, that, and this is probably why I've gone from just doing this sort of as a service because it was an underserved area here to making it the bulk of my practices. That minute when, when someone who has never worked on their voice before finds that spot that speaks to them, some people laugh, some people grin, some people just glow. Like their expression doesn't really change, but they're glowing and it just... I love that. And so nothing altruistic about it. I, it makes me feel really good. So I like to do it. So oh, of course. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, you know, one story I tell people is as I was doing voice training, my one of the places I often got misgendered was on the phone or in a drive through, you know, and you know, full disclosure, my kind of guilty pleasure is a McDonald's vanilla ice cream cone, you know, <laughs> in the middle of the night, I'll drive in through the drive through and get an ice cream cone. And I, I don't know, it's just kind of like a treat. Yeah. But even when I was at a point where I was rarely getting misgendered in public, just kind of walking down the street, going into retail stores, in those settings that were auditory only, I would still get misgendered. And so there was this period where I would kind of brace myself going through the drive through or I would kind of avoid that situation. And then at one point, I distinctly noticed the first time that someone didn't call me sir in the drive through line. And, and they didn't go right to calling me ma'am, but they they it was like they didn't use a gendered term. Yeah. And and it's like, wow, that's well, that's way better than be, getting misgendered. Yeah. Um, 
And then a couple months later, I was going through a similar situation, going through a drive-through, and the who, whoever was behind the you know the screen there um, called me ma'am, and you should have seen the smile on my face was like a mile wide. It was like, oh my god, you know, I've, it's one of those call your friends and tell them what just happened moments. Yeah, for sure. I you know there's it's not. And it has, I don't think it has very, everything to do with appearance. Why, when it's an auditory only experience, you get misgendered. It's because a lot of the signal gets clipped out and it's usually higher range. So as you have those, those higher formants, right, if they're, if they're only equally as strong or less strong than the lower formants, the lower resonant formants, they get clipped off. And so what the person is going to hear is what's the undertone versus the whole voice and all the acoustic information. It's like telephones, like Zoom sometimes, and definitely, definitely the drive-through. And the best of all worlds is what you experienced where it can be your natural voice, the voice that you found that, you know, expresses who you are. I do have tricks for people who still struggle. You know, we talk about getting a little hypernasal. It's a trick I use if I'm in a noisy bar and I want the bartender to see me and hear me because I'm short. So it's hard to get attention. So, you know, we can try doing some of those things for people till they get comfortable and, and you know, are really using their their voice. But yeah, the drive-ins are, are tough. I had one patient, uh, very successful, very successful in terms of voice who uh, loved I can't remember. I think it was McDonald's. And I had her every day for a week going through the drive through and thinking about like what she was producing. Was she really able to focus on, you know, what she was doing with me in therapy when she was in the drive through and writing little notes when she got out. And by the end of that week, she said she could do it. She was getting mammed every time, but she gained 10 pounds. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. Uh. You know, you you mentioned something there. You talked about like some recording systems, clipping frequencies and stuff like that. And I think a lot of people, when they think about voice therapy, they immediately go to pitch being the most important, you know, aspect of voice. And can you maybe talk about like, what are those those portions of the voice that you're training um, in addition to frequency? You know, there's other things. Okay. Yeah, sure. So the, actually the first thing that I usually do is not pitch, it's resonance. It's what part of the, the vocal tract is sympathetically vibrating with the sound waves that are just air that comes up from our lungs that the vocal cords set into vibration. So that is one of the things that blinded listeners use to to categorize people or to gender people when they're listening. So we usually do that first, excuse me. So that's one of the first, one of the most important things that people will listen to. So we work on resonance both to produce that lighter sound, to bring our voice, if we're talking about feminization, bring our voice forward to produce more of that lighter tone, have more of the smaller bones vibrating, narrowing the vocal tract so it vibrates in a narrow, 
cavity. The second reason I do it first is because once we get that nice, healthy resonance going, we can start changing pitch without hurting ourselves, right? Because if we're always guided by what we're feeling here at our mouth or in our mask, we're never going to do that unhealthy squeeze. We're never going to spend time up here, except occasionally, right? We all go up there once in a while. That's part of of our, our pitch contour, but we can't stay up here because it doesn't sound authentic, right? And the reason it doesn't sound authentic is because there's no resonance there. Nothing is sympathetically vibrating at that pitch. So that keeps that boundary for us as well. So I believe, and, and I think this is pretty consistent with the other professionals in my field. It's, it's kind of a small group. In, in the country that does this, that, that resonance is sort of the bottom of the pyramid. And then we go to pitch. Then I go to work on inflection. So how we inflect, feminine inflection is usually with pitch, masculine inflection with volume. Those three things usually do the trick. After that, there are seven or eight different things, vowel shaping, legato speech, all those things that we can add if we need to. You know, I kind of think of it like a scale, right? And you have, you know, feminine here, masculine here, and you start putting stones on one side of the scale until you get what you want. And not everybody wants to be fully feminine or fully masculine either. I have a lot of non-binary client, patients, clients now who, um, who don't want a gendered voice. And we do that too. Wow, that's really interesting. I, what, what kind of, how would the training be different when you're dealing with a non-binary training, you know, versus, you know, a trans woman versus a trans man? It depends on where their voice is. So it's more neutralizing. So say that I was non-binary and my voice is feminine. I grew up being called a girl and I have a feminine inflection and speech pattern and also, you know, a lighter tone. So what I would work to do is to darken that tone a little bit. I bring the resonance more down here. I would try to get rid of some of the, the, the pitch curve, right? The, the inflection curve is really big. And me, I'm always like all over the place. But yeah, the more animated you are, the bigger it's going to be. Um, I'm going to shorten that up so that I'm more, I'm a little less... Um, I'm a little more monotone. I hate using that word. It sounds derogatory, but I'm a little more monotone. I might clip my voice a little bit so that it's not so legato. And I'm going to put it a little down here. And I think maybe if I really worked on it and I haven't warmed up, so I can't do it well, I can get to the point where if you're talking to me on the phone, you're not going to be able to tell. You're not going to gender me either way because you'll be afraid to because you you don't know. Right. Yeah. So, so Jerry, and also in there, you know, there's all the therapies and everything else, but there are also vocal surgeries. So how do those how do those play together? Because I would think, you know, if you you could go get the surgery, but if you really don't know how to work with your voice, that could be a pointless exercise. Um, tread really carefully here. Yeah. <laughs> so um, there are a few different surgeries that you can have to try to feminize your voice. Um, 
they involve shortening the vocal folds, fusing the vocal folds together so that there's a smaller vibrating portion. There is a more um, invasive therapy that also changes the shape of the pharynx for the reasons we talked about, right? If you have big cavernous vocal tract, it's going to sympath sympathetically vibrate at lower pitches. If you have smaller vocal tract, it's going to sympathetically vibrate at higher pitches and give you more of that information. So there are physicians who will also work to tighten up that vocal tract and to shorten it a little bit. The long-term results are not positive. So some of the older surgeries uh, are just no good. No one does well with them after a while. And for a long time, when I first started, laryngologists were not doing this surgery at all. Maybe 10 years ago, maybe a little longer. Um, Yesin, I'm not sure if you're familiar, if you've looked into voice surgery at all, but it's a surgical center in Korea, began doing the Wendler glottoplasty where they fuse the front of the, so they, they rough up the front of the vocal folds where, you know, kind of the interior commissure. So where the, the bottom of the V and they rough it up and they stitch it together and then they inject it with a filler to keep it pressed together so that it'll heal together. So they've effectively shortened the length of the vibrating part of the fold. So obviously if it's, if folds are smaller, they're gonna vibrate faster and that's gonna create a higher pitch. So that was producing some pretty nice voices and they were lasting for a while. But I think over time, they're finding that some of those are also dehissing, meaning they're coming apart, right? That tissue is just separating. And at that point, then you've messed with somebody's voice. You can't recover any of the, you know, the smooth tone or vocal qualities and they don't have their higher pitch. I'm gonna go out on a little tiny limb here. The, the physicians at URMC are absolutely considering these surgeries. If they can find a surgery and the research that says that it'll benefit the patient. Until then, we had been sending people to a place that I won't name in New York. And the, the results, the last three patients that I have had come back from there, the results have been bad. They have gone down with pitches 180, 190, you know, beautiful lilting inflection, nice voices, and come back with pitches in 130, 140 area. So solid masculine pitch, but also with a rough, gravelly voice. And it, it just is heartbreaking, especially since, because you mentioned you can't do just the surgery because there's so much more than pitch and that's all that the surgery affects, right? It, it, inflection is so important. The resonance is so important. So you're going to have to do the therapy anyway. So I think any physician that is willing to do the surgery without having someone spend the considerable amount of time it takes to solidly work on voice training, I, I don't think it's completely ethical. That was you know, out of my limb. I don't think that was too much of a limb, Jamie. Okay. 
Yeah, I, you know, I was our doctors that for not doing that. I just need to add that they are, they are very thoughtful and caring in their approach. And I'm very glad they, they are waiting. And I'm sorry, Jamie, I didn't mean to interrupt. Oh, no, that's fine. I was, you know, at one point I was doing some research, reading about some of the procedures you mentioned, and I kind of came to the conclusion that it was worth at least doing voice training first to, you know, at a minimum, let me see how that changes my voice and, 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 and how do I react to that? And then I could still make a decision to possibly do a surgery if I wanted to. But, you know, ultimately, I feel like my voice now is it's my it's my natural voice there. Like, I don't I, I, you know, people sometimes will say, can you talk in your other voice or your old voice? And it's like, that's not even my voice anymore. I don't you know, my muscles are different. This is just how I naturally speak. That's a rude thing to ask you to do, too. Well, yeah, it's a, I mean, it's kind of an odd, yes, I agree with you. It's kind of an odd thing. I, I will, I, with my voice therapist, I was, I've also been doing some singing um, training, you know, trying to improve my karaoke game. And mm-hmm. and um, I think this kind of goes to, like, how personal your voice can be. We were singing songs, and, and we started looking at, we were doing an exercise, just kind of a voice warm up kind of thing. And and we were she was kind of getting me to go into the lower ranges of my voice a little bit. And I got to a point where I was I was no longer comfortable because I couldn't like naturally produce the the lowest tone that she had gotten me down to anymore. I was like going to have to really work to get down there. And it just felt so unnatural and it kind of caused an emotional response on me. I ended up having a little mini breakdown for a few minutes there because I just like, oh, my God, I don't even want to try to go to that place in my voice. Because is it going to trap you there, right? Is it that's um, it's it's very scary feeling to think about the fact that you might go backward and and what happens if I stay there. But also you talked about feeling physically uncomfortable too, right? You had to work. And that's the point. That's that's the spot, right? Where where your voice is your voice and that other voice is that's the past. That's that's not me anymore. And okay. you know, I like to I always ask people when we do the evaluation what they like about their voice because I think it's important and I don't take I hate my voice for an answer, you know, <laughs> a bit more but because who we were is what gets us to where we are. <clears throat> right? So so all of us has has served a purpose and held us up and done what we needed it to do at the time. And it also sort of gives us a clue to how, you know, what we want to work toward, what do we want to keep and enhance. And it just, it, I think it's important. But yeah, I'm, I'm sorry people ask you to do that. That's not, this is not cool. I want to hear your old voice. Hmm. Yeah, exactly. Did you, did you eventually, so I'm assuming you sound wonderful. So I'm assuming you have a great therapist. Um, so the singing, 
was your, are you comfortable now kind of dipping down to sing without kind of panicking about being down there? Or did you just decide to sing at a little bit higher range? That That's interesting. You know, I would say that I tend to focus on songs that are a little bit higher pitched. Like I'm not trying to sing anything that's baritone-ish, you know, at all. But, but you know, I will, I will vary my, my voice a little bit as necessary for the song. I think for me, I was, I've been trying to work more on the higher end to like see how, how much, how bright can I get my voice in, in a singing? And, you know, one of the things I, I learned is like, often, often I couldn't get enough air behind my voice. So I had to work on like, okay, I could reach a higher pitch, but it really wasn't a strong sound. And, you know, so those are some of the things I've been working on as well. It sounds wonderful. It, it's hard when we stiffen up those vocal folds, it takes a lot more air to make them vibrate, to get that full sound, to get all that acoustic information in there. And it's one of the reasons where we start with breath support and how you're gonna breathe so that you can get all of that good, resonant information or that acoustic information in your voice it's it's hard work and you have to train for it and it it can feel exhausting in the beginning too until you've built up all that all that extra muscle strength and motor pattern could you talk a little bit about the importance of you know intonation and voice pattern you know once you get beyond kind of resonance and pitch um like i don't and i don't know maybe is there is there variation in, in speaking patterns for women from country to country, for example? I think those are interesting questions. Oh, I'm sure. And you're not going to get me to talk about that because. Oh, OK. Because as far as other countries, I do not I would not treat someone or mm, I would treat them. But I with the caveat and the warning that I don't know inflection patterns for say Swedish or whatever, or certainly some of the, the Asian languages like the back of my hand, like I do English, right? So I would feel like I was a little out of my depth, but I can talk to you about what it's like in English for sure. So baseline is resonance, pitch, inflection. And as I said before, inflection, uh, feminine inflection in English tends to be with pitch, masculine with volume. Um, Psycholinguistic studies will say men communicate to give information or to gain power. Women communicate to build consensus. So whether that's true in your experience in the world, I don't know. I, I think it, that's kind of a hard and fast rule and, and it varies a lot depending on who you're with. Um, but it certainly helps us inform how we're gonna look at language for our patients and clients. After we do the, the first three, I have a, a set of six or seven things that we go over. Um, a friend of mine, a friend and actually mentor, Sandy Hirsch, who works out of Seattle, it, she's written a couple of the textbooks on trans and gender affirming voice therapy, um, used to give me sessions 
over the phone, <laughs> I would call her and pay her an hour at a time to train me until I could get her to come out and work with me in person. Um, she is working on a, a program called Acoustic Assumptions. And it really is this list of uh, a variety of things that can make a dramatic difference if you can employ them. And so I always, I have everybody get the first three things in place and feel good about that. And then we'll start working on, on vowels. I'm, I used the word bright before, right? I'm brightening vowels, right? So we want to shape our vowels so that nothing is big here. Those ah, ooh, right? We don't want that vibration big here in this big cavernous pharynx. We want to bring them up. So we're going to maybe smile a little bit or narrow the inside of our vocal tract so that they sound brighter. Um, she calls it ifification. So you're kind of adding the if sound onto the vowel sound you're making. We talk about legato speech. So we talk about connecting everything we're saying so that you can really hear the music in the voice versus staccato. So I wanna to go to the store. I want to go to the store, right? Feminine versus masculine. We talk about slower pace and hanging on to our vowels and some of those buzzy consonants, so the consonants that are continuance, and that helps us slow down and become more legato as well. We talk about contacts. So when we say baby buys beer, do we say like that, where we're hard, hard contacts on the but 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 baby buys beer or baby buys beer, lighter contacts fading away at the end of a sentence instead of a hard stop. I want to go to the store. I want to go to the store. Um, let's see, what else? Um, and another easy, easy onset. So another light contact, but contacts with the vocal folds. So you don't say, I eat eggs every Easter. You say, I eat eggs every Easter. So all of those different things. Now. Some of them are harder than others for people to get, right? Everybody's built different. So some things are easier for us than, you know, than they are for other people. And some people say, no, that feels unnatural to me. I don't like that. So it's sort of a menu, which is kind of a funny way to look at it, but we play with it all. We see what fits, what's congruent with who I am. And the other thing I think, back to your question about changes, is that I think our language and the way we speak is becoming more non-binary or less gendered now than it was 15 years ago and certainly than it was when I grew up in the 50s and 60s. I think that um, I say that word a lot. I'm noticing. I think <laughs> um, when I want somebody to practice some really dramatic feminine speech, I will have them watch my TV and watch Leave it to Beaver and imitate June Cleaver. No one speaks like that anymore. It's a great jumping off point if you want to practice some of that, but right. none of us speak like that anymore. It is all neutralized. And the more texting we do and the more emailing we do, that all that's reflected then all those habits in our speech and our language. And it's all becoming less and less engendered. So, so we play. We don't, 
we don't just set a formula and say, you know, you have to have a pitch curve that looks like this. We play and find what suits that person, you know, that we're working with. Jerry, and this is all fantastic stuff, but you know, in our, and I know we can only speak to New York, generally speaking, because you practice in New York. I live in New York. Jamie lives in Virginia, but so we'll, we'll, but generally speaking, is transgender vocal therapy going to be covered by insurance? Because unfortunately, we don't live in a world without money. So how does insurance play into this for transgender patients? I'm so glad you asked that question. Because <laughs> I still need to vent. So- <laughs> Have you worked in health insurance for for 15 years and had a health insurance license? Vent all you want. (laughs) So insurance is is very broad, right? And can be governed at the federal level. And it's also very, um, very narrow and can be affected at the local level. When I first started doing voice therapy, a lot of voice therapy wasn't covered because it was considered cosmetic. And I spent a lot of time sending piles to medical directors in the area, to all the different insurance companies, until we eventually got to the point where most of our voice therapies were covered. I did the same thing with gender-affirming therapy and was just at the point Last year, the year before, when Medicare had made the changes about surgeries and and other and other treatment, that the insurance companies were kind of uh, okaying the voice therapy, even though the Medicare verbiage didn't include voice therapy. And I thought, oh, finally, so we're here. So you know, we're we're in the enlightened world and. And then our administration changed. And it happened very quickly that denials started coming much quicker than than policy could have reached local level. So my feeling is it was basically just like, what do we think we can afford to deny without getting, you know, in trouble with the insurance board or whoever governs them? I'm not sure. This year, in January, I lost coverage for about 15 patients who were on Excellus, any of the government policies, Excellus, Blue Choice, Blue Cross. And I spent quite a bit of time, I appealed like four people, and so got to know the medical director really well. I don't know if he enjoyed it or not, but he actually- Why not? You're delightful. Sometimes. I've also been called a bulldog. So he was verbally very sympathetic. I don't know that he really was, but he expressed sympathy. He read me the language that had just come down from the state in January. And it said something interesting. It said that the voice therapy will only be covered if it is caused by a functional problem. So I don't know, you know, how much you know about medicine, but when we say something is a functional problem, we mean it's not organic. It doesn't come from an anatomical problem, uh, you know, a pathological process. It is, it's purely functional. So whether it's functional because somebody is having like somatic expressions of stress or it's functional, say uh, a young teenager 
who has pure phonia, right? He's gone through puberty and his voice is still really high. So functional like that. And I'm thinking, what's more functional than a voice that is doing its job, but it needs to be different to express who the person is. He said, that's not what that means. So I said, can you tell me? And he really had a hard time telling me. And when I said, you mean like organic? And he said, yes, that's it. So I, I don't know that he really knew and was just taking cues from me what to say. I went to the committee that we have at my hospital. Um, I'm going to get in trouble because I don't remember what the acronym is for, but it's called Thrive. And it is, uh, its ultimate goal is to build a Jenner Center at the U- University of Rochester. So we've been working on changing e-records so that people don't get, you know, misgendered or dead named in our electronic healthcare records, different things like that. Training people um, within different departments. So I went to them and they had a wealth of information for me, which really made me feel better because I was feeling a little hopeless. And what they, the consensus there was is that that was policy from the Trump administration that had finally filtered its way up to the state. So they were going to contact government relations and try to undo that quickly. And I hope they're successful. But in the meantime, my department had said that I could go ahead on the day that I do group and add two groups that we don't call therapy groups. We call them some kind of social group and we don't have to bill for them. So that at least covers people for doing some kind of therapy. It might not be individual, but it it will cover some therapy. Does voice therapy need to be part of gender affirming treatment altogether? I say, hell yes, because you can't you can't, you can't hide your voice. You can't put makeup on your voice. You can't put a dress or put trousers on your voice, you know? And you can't go around the world not talking like some of my patients who who don't want to say anything. I think WPATH is amazing, but I don't think they do a really great job of strongly advocating for that. I think they could do a better job. I think my governing body, ASHA, the American Speech and Language and Hearing Association, could also do a better job advocating for that. Well, so- and that, I was just going to say, jump it in real quick. From, a, from an insurance standpoint, it sounds like a couple of different things. Number one, you said the Trump administration and Jamie and I have discussed, you know, personally and, you know, in our in our own podcast episodes previously, health and human services rules that have finally worked their way up through the Trump administration. And now with Medicaid dollars being, you know, and New York state government's facing a 15 billion with a B dollar shortfall for their next fiscal year, because of, you know, we've taken such a hit here in the state, you know, that really, from my insurance background, mind that really passes a sniff test to saying, okay, where can we cut dollars where we don't have to spend, especially related to Medicaid expenses? So I think I think your I think your Thrive Group is really onto something there, and I think that's probably what's going on. And I would challenge that thinking in terms of of that being a place to cut dollars if you're trying to save the state budget. I mean, you're talking about thirteen dollars a visit, right? You're not talking about big money. 
voice therapy is, I believe, the gender affirming therapy is so intimately tied to the mental health of the trans community, the toll that it takes to feel like you can't communicate who you are, to be misgendered, to feel unsafe when you're out in public, those, those, those turn into dollars, right? They turn into mental health dollars. They turn into suicide attempts. They turn into suicides that are successful. They, it, it just makes no sense. It is such a little puny drop in the bucket to pay that $13 a session or whatever it is. It, 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 yeah, I, I don't like that argument that that's a place to save money because it's not, you're going to wind up spending more in the long run anyway. And then you have the cost of the human pain and suffering. Yeah, just to make a clarification, I'm not saying that I agree with that line oh, of I thinking. Know you don't. Yeah, no. Okay, I just want to make sure I'm just saying from an insurance standpoint and understanding that that side of it and you know yeah my my brother's an actuary too so you know so i get the idea of the big numbers and how those play together jamie i know you had a point oh i just gary and i just love what you're talking about developing a um kind of a holistic um you know gender affirming treatment center where you do address all of these things and i think a little bit you know maybe it's going to take some time for insurers to come around but you know if you go back I don't know how many years, but probably 20 years could be less. Things like breast augmentation were routinely treated as, you know, that's cosmetic, that's not functional. And, you know, people, someone finally got around to saying, well, look, when a cisgender woman has um, breast cancer and has a mastectomy, insurers do pay for breast augmentation. And it's really because of the mental health aspects of going through that procedure and transgender women, you know, have very similar mental health concerns, you know, that are directly analogous. And, and so I think I'm hopeful that maybe they will start to view voice as, you know, in, in a similar way where, you know, this is really important to the, to the health of the, of the people. You know, I, I agree. I'm hopeful as well, especially with our new administration and, I hate to say this, but it seems like there's a bandwagon to be jumped on right now, right? And so some some people are jumping on the bandwagon because it's the place to be right now. And that's okay. I feel very comfortable using like, uh, you know, my healthcare systems need to show their their diversity and uh, and their compassion and whatever else. I, I'm happy to jump on that and and help people get better because we're doing you know marketing or promotion that we we are a certain way um and i do think i do think eventually it'll get better i just i i just have a really hard time understanding how it got left behind in the first place i don't understand that <coughs> trump <coughs> <laughs> well, that all of that got left behind with Trump, but it's from before that. And like I said, even WPAS comment about voice therapy is very, very kind of, you know, 
Well, it, I, I, you know, we could get into DSM four, DSM five, and all kinds of things. You know, talking about pathological stuff and how that relates to transgender issues. You know, and so that this could be a whole deep dive into something else. So, well, it, it could. That's a whole nother issue. Why do yeah. I have to use uh, gender dysphoria to get my therapy paid for? Right. Well, yeah, and that's actually, I've actually written about this in my mental health program already. I have to be cognizant, wait, you know, because I'm going to be working, my goal is to work with transgender youth and their parents. There's going to be a certain group of patients that I'm going to work with that are going to try to work as hard as they can not to get that gender dysphoria diagnosis. They're just going to want, they're going to want help for their issues, what's going on in their life, and find a place to move forward. But yeah, for anything insurance-related, that gender dysphoria code triggers so much for hormone replacement therapy, puberty blockers, surgeries, anything down the road. So it's it's a this huge catch-22, and I think... And I think the APA with future versions of DSM, I don't think gender dysphoria is going to be in there. I think it's going to be moved out eventually, and it's not even going to be treated as a mental health issue because I, I, I think I speak for Jamie and I'll speak for myself here. But once we've dealt with our gender issues and what society might think of us and we got past that, life's pretty good. But sometimes we got put up with some shitty people in society. So that's that's the issue. And this is, and as a as a, a lay person in terms of of the DSM, my understanding of dysphoria comes from knowing a little bit about you know eating disorders and some of my swallowing patients and things. And what I what I know is is that someone can look in the mirror and not see reality, right? And then you say, okay, that person is dysphoric. That's not what's going on here at all, right? There are things that that need to be surgically changed or changed through therapy in order to have congruence between who you are and a physical, you know, physical attributions. And that doesn't seem to fit what I see as dysphoria. Yeah, that's interesting. Could I go back to one other topic real quick? Um I wanted to get your, you had mentioned having some of your um, patients watch an old TV show, for example. And I know at one point what I started doing is I would listen to a lot of podcasts driving into work back, you know, pre-COVID, you know, because in the D.C. area, you spend a lot of time on the roads. And I, I purposely changed the podcast that I was listening to and um, to ex- almost exclusively and for a while exclusively listen to podcasts hosted by women. And it's like, because I want, I was really trying to focus on the speech patterns and the interplay between two women having a conversation. And to me, that seemed to help. And I'm wondering, do you have any advice along those lines or it, are there do you have a favorite woman's voice that you say, you know, here, here are five women that you might see on TV who have these really great voices? Like, what do you what do you think about those ideas? So I, I probably wouldn't do the here are five women because everybody's so different in what they like. Sure. So but yeah, we look at um, 
we look at TV shows, we listen to podcasts, we listen to singers. Last Thursday, we actually spent a whole two-hour group playing different singers to try to talk about and identify breathy voice versus not breathy voice. What do we think is too breathy? What do we think? Because talking about the politics of voice and gender too, I don't know if every clinician thinks it's important. I do. So talking about what it means when you talk in a breathy voice or with an uptick at the end of your voice, what, what kind of power do we take or do we give up by how we speak? So yeah, I, I I love that idea because when even for people who aren't doing gender affirming gender affirming voice work, we imitate and learn the voices that are around us. Like I said, by the time we're two, it's kind of set. But we don't grow up to be our mothers and our aunts, and well, hope not anyway. Um, so to take in, you know, everything that's out there, this this rich open field of different voices and different speaking patterns, and take what we like and incorporate it into our own behaviors. I think that's really important, and I think we all we all do it. We not just because we're doing gender affirming voice. We all do it because something will sound, yeah, yeah, that that resonates with me. I like that. Yeah, it's interesting. New new terms come into being all the time or into popular usage. And um, I think I read an article or a book one time that was talking about um, like teenage girls are some of the drivers of 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 the language. The language that teenage girls are using now is going to be popular culture in five years, and then everyone's going to be doing it in ten years. Yeah. Oh, for sure. And that, I think that's always been the way. Isn't that funny? Yeah. We talk about that. I teach a voice disorders course at Nazareth College to grad students, and um, have had meetings where we've talked about communicating with the students. Because now with technology driving communication, the gap between one generation and another is huge compared to what it was prior. And we have some professors who think it's terrible that a student will text them and say they can't make it to class. Other professors say, text me because I don't want to be answering the phone when you call, you know. So, yeah, all of that is it's so interesting. And right now, because change is happening so fast, every day, every day, it's kind of like the 1920s, you know, when when we were leaving the Industrial Revolution and, and just, or going into the Industrial Revolution rather, um, and everything was changing so fast. It feels like that kind of time right now where, you know, the world is not going to be the same as it was 10 years ago, 15 years ago. We're in one of those big transition stages. And that's important for language and speech. Well, speaking about transition, Jerry Ann and Jamie, this is a great place. And you use the word uptick in there. So I think we ended on a great uptick moment. So let's take our second break of the show. And then when we come back, um, Jerry Ann's going to stick around for a little bit longer and we're going to run five, 10 minutes tops. And we're just going to run through a couple vocal exercises just to kind of give everybody a demonstration of how that works. And we'll be right back with more Transformation Thursday right after this. 
to financially support Transformation Thursday, go to TransformationThursday.com and that will bring you to our Patreon page. Once there, click on Become a Patron. You can also follow us online on Facebook. You can follow us by searching Transformation Thursday Podcast and please join our private Facebook group by searching Transformation Thursday on Facebook. On Twitter and Instagram, you can follow us at TransThursPod. To make sure you stay up to date with all the latest episodes, please subscribe to Transformation Thursday on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. On Apple Podcasts, please leave us a five-star rating and a short review. It's free and it does help get Transformation Thursday out to a larger audience. Finally, Transformation Thursday is copyrighted material. All rights reserved 2021. Welcome back to Transformation Thursday. I am Amy Stevens. My pronouns are she, her. And I'm Jamie Rodriguez. And my pronouns are she, her. Yeah, and Jerry Ann is back with us. We're going to run through a couple of little exercises here, and hopefully uh, Jamie and I are going to be comfortable with it, but I think we've both done some, well, I know I've done some vocal therapy, and Jamie said she did too in the last segment. So Jerry Ann, what do you got for us? All right, so we'll do an exercise that is a semi-occluded vocal tract exercise, and what that means is we're going to balance the air pressure above and below our vocal folds so that we get optimal function and vibration. And this will allow us to start to move around our pitch range with comfort and ease. And I wanna remind everybody who's listening and Jamie and Amy, both to use really proper breath support, right? We're gonna take a big abdominal breath. We're gonna use our abdominal wall as a is our gas pedal for our voice. And I did not prepare you to bring a straw and water with you. I see Amy reaching. Is she grabbing a straw and water? Oh, I love it. Okay. Jamie, have you ever done lip buzz like this? I have, yes. Okay, so you can do a lip buzz. We can do the, the straw and water as well. As long as you feel that buzz on your lips, whether it's through the lip buzz or between your lips and the straw, you're in good shape, okay? So we can start out with just a nice little easy glide. Are we following you or are we keeping pace with you? I'm not sure. Either one. Okay. Either one. We're going to do some happy birthday now. We can use a lip buzz. I see everybody's using the lip buzz. So let's do a little lip buzz. We're going to do two rounds of happy birthday. And then I want you both just to count to five and tell me what you think about your voice and how it feels and how easy it is to get, you know, lighter and higher after doing this task. So. Go around again. Mm-hmm. 
Okay. Count to five out loud. One, One two, three, four, five. What do you feel like after doing that activity? How does your voice feel? I definitely feel like I've got a little more power behind my voice. Yeah. Yeah. A little lighter, maybe a little higher resonance. Yeah. Forward, bright focus. Amy? Yeah, same here. A little bit more power, but I, you know, and we've discussed this in our session, sessions. I really like it when I get up under that hard palate. And that's where I really felt that when I really concentrate on that lip and placement and where that breath comes out, where it, that just to me just hits that natural spot where I like to yeah. be. Yes. Yeah. And that's, and it sounds so natural and so light and so bright. And so you could take an exercise like that. And if you're going to stretch with it, I wouldn't necessarily recommend doing the lip buzz unless you're really good at it. Go back and like use the straw and water, but you can stretch up as high as you can go. As long as you're feeling that buzz between your lip and the straw, you're not going to hurt yourself. And I like for people to practice way up in falsetto, even though we're not really going to spend a lot of time there talking. But my most successful patients are people who have spent a lot of time out up there. In fact, even people who start out trying to change their own voice and um, go way too high for a long period of time. So they come in and we bring them down a little bit. But because they've built that motor pattern for the upper range and that strength in the upper range, it's easier to stay up there. So use this kind of task to really get up there and play around. And you can do it in a healthy way as long as you're balancing that air pressure. Yeah, I found when I first started training, I would often speak really high, but I didn't have any power behind my voice. You know, I couldn't project and... So those kind of exercises help me to, you know, be able to speak in front of a crowd, for example. Yeah. Yes. And, they, you know, they're I think they're wonderful for everybody. Um, I've worked with with judges and police officers and, and other people who who say I really need to speak with authority and just being able to bring that extra resonance in got them where they wanted to go. But I but I love it for the gender affirming work. I use it for both transmasculine and transfeminine, but I really love it for the transfeminine voice because you can stretch as high as you want and, and not hurt yourself. And that's a really good deal. Well, I think this is a fantastic place to wrap up. Jerry Ann, how would, if somebody wants to Get a hold of you for some lessons. Um, I know we've done ours on Zoom, so technology is there to make this happen, um, even with some distance between us as we continually um, continue to socially distance. Um, but how would they get a hold of you? So I work four days a week at the University of Rochester Medical Center's Voice Center, and you can reach me there at 585-758-5730. And I have a private practice on Saturdays and you can reach me there at 585-365-4633. So that would be voiceover speech pathology services. Well, that's fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for coming on, Jerry. And I know we've been trying to make this happen for like a month or two and I appreciate your patience and working with us. And I appreciate oh. Jamie 
for sitting in today for Penny. So thank you, both of you. Thank you for having me. And it was so nice to meet you, Jamie. Yeah, and thank you for the important work you're doing. It's so helpful to the community. No, I do it because I like it. I'm selfish. (laughs) Well, nothing wrong with that. You know, we all help each other. So, well, this is a perfect night to say goodnight, everybody. Good night. Good night.